Hi, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winnie Da Silva. As an executive coach and leadership strategist for over 20 years, I've also wanted to share the amazing insights and stories from my clients and other amazing people I know. Every episode, you will hear inspiring stories, insider tips, and practical ideas you can use during these unprecedented times. I'd also love your help spreading the word about this podcast. Tell someone you know about this episode or post about it on social media. I'd be grateful. My guest today is an Army veteran, a retired cyber FBI special agent in charge, and she is now a keynote speaker, a leadership consultant, and the host of the podcast, Lead Like a Lady, which features remarkable women who are leaders in traditionally male-dominated fields. You're really going to enjoy her fresh and bold perspective on leadership and how you should always listen to your mother. What percentage of my day is getting the ball down the field and what percentage of my day is criticizing myself or wishing I had more confidence or tolerating things that I shouldn't be tolerating? What can you eliminate during the other 75% of the day that you can convert to getting the ball down the field? My mom used to tell me when I was a kid, it's none of your business what other people think about you. And I think that takes a lot of pressure off as women, as we're dressing to go to work, trying to impress other people or trying to be something that we may or may not be. All of these things, again, they're just taking away from us getting the ball down the field. Gina L. Osborne, thank you so much for being on my show today. I'm really excited for you to be here. My pleasure, Winnie. I'm excited to be here myself. We don't know each other very well, but we've recently bonded over how to be a successful podcaster because, of course, you have your own podcast, Lead Like a Lady, which is an amazing podcast. And I recommend that everyone who's listening to this podcast listen to your podcast as well. Not only that, you truly have an amazing story. And I can't wait for you to share it with people listening today. Before we get started, could you give us a snapshot of your incredible career? As I mentioned before, you were an FBI special agent, you were in the Army. Can you share some highlights and what that career looked like? Yes, absolutely. Gosh, okay, it started out in the Army. I wanted to work for the CIA, and that was my dream back in the 80s. I'm going to date myself a little bit. I was fascinated with the Cold War. I was fascinated with anything about the KGB or the CIA and any sort of books about women being spies. That's what I wanted to do. And in my second year of college, I was a cocktail waitress at a comedy club. (laughs) And I was in the library studying and a young man came up and sat next to me and started telling me about the Army's counterintelligence program, about how I could live overseas in a condo. It was totally Private Benjamin, if you remember that movie back in the day. Oh, yeah. And the next day I went down and I signed up and it turned out to be exactly what he said it was. I wound up in Belgium for two and a half years and Germany for about three and a half years. And while I was in Germany, I was on a team that investigated the highest profile espionage cases in the European theater. So I was on the road nine or 10 months out of the year traveling around undercover. So it was really just an exciting time and not bad for a cocktail waitress from Orange County, California. (laughs) That's pretty good. Yeah, I know. That's amazing. Yeah. So I didn't wind up going into the CIA. I went into the FBI and I was very fortunate to be assigned in my hometown. So my first arrest was across the street from my high school. Oh my gosh. 
And I worked everything from Asian organized crime, and then 9-11 happened, and that's when everybody worked terrorism. And then I went back to headquarters because in order to promote to the executive ranks, you have to go back to the mothership for a period of time. So I was on the inspection staff there, and I traveled around to a bunch of different field offices and inspected their programs and finances and all those things. And then the last 11 years, I was in charge of cyber and computer forensics for FBI Los Angeles. Wow, that's amazing. So I'm curious, the way you thought about what it was going to be like and what you're getting yourself into and what it was, what's the delta there? Is it better than you thought? Not what you thought? How does that compare? Gosh, I'm a big dreamer. I am a huge dreamer. I spend a lot of time thinking about how I think it's going to be. And I think that has a lot to do with getting into a position because when I went into the army, it could have gone very, very bad for me. And I'm a Barbizon School of Modeling graduate. And although I was a brownie, the whole idea of sleeping outside was not my thing, if you know what I mean. <laughs> uh-huh. So going overseas on a civilian clothes assignment and being undercover was a lot different if I would have gone to Fort Hood, Texas, and I would have been, they used to say, painting rocks. That's what counterintelligence agents would do in tactical assignments, at least. That's what they would scare us into. And I was very fortunate to getting, in fact, it was better than what I thought it would be. So it was great. Wow. It sounds like maybe you got lucky going on the path that you initially got on in the beginning of this career. Yeah, I think so. And also I like to envision where it is I'm going, what it is that I'm doing. And I spend a lot of time on that. So during the road trip of getting to where I wanted to be, if something didn't happen right, I would say, wait a minute, no, 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 no. This isn't how it's supposed to be. And then I would try and work out a way. So for example, when I went to Germany, our battalion headquarters was in Kaiserslautern, Germany. And my goal was to be the first one in my class, because there were probably about 15 or 20 agents in my class at Fort Huachuca, Arizona that we're all going to the same place. So I wanted to be the first one because in my mind, I thought I was going to be able to pick out my assignment. So I get there and one of the other students in my class got there first and he told me, oh no, we're the first five. We all have to stay at headquarters. We're going to live in barracks. We're not going to be able to go out and do espionage investigations. We have to do admin work and we have to wear a uniform. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. That is not going to happen. That is not what I envisioned. (laughs) And so here I was, I think I was a private first class at the time. And when I was sitting down with the sergeant first class, which was several ranks, five ranks ahead of me or so, he said I was going to stay. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I need to go out to a detachment. And he's looking at me like I'm absolutely crazy. And then he said something to the effect of, well, we have this assignment in Belgium, but you have to speak French. And I'm like, well, I speak French. And if you ask my French teacher in high school, she would not really agree with that (laughs) statement. But I did speak French. I took three years in high school. Uh, I wasn't that good, but I wound up in Belgium as a result of it. However, my captain in Belgium was fluent in French, like Parisian French, and he was a little disappointed. But the orders were cut and I was there. (laughs) So there you have it. They had to make it work. (laughs) Exactly. Wow, that's so cool. I just love your drive and determination and willingness to be bold, saying this is not what I thought and let's try this and not being afraid just because A, obviously you're a woman, but B, you're like five ranks behind the person you're talking to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, four ranks. He was an E7 and I was an E3. (laughs) Okay, so four, not five. Okay. I love the fact that you raised your hand and said, I speak French 
And whether or not that definition of speaking French aligned with his, it didn't matter. (laughs) I love that. I think that's great. And this was back in the 80s, right? And fewer than 10% of soldiers were women. Okay. Wow. Here this guy has this big blonde California former cocktail waitress just gone through training saying, hey, no, 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 no. That's not working for me. And I was surprised. It could have gone one way. It could have gone the other. But you have to speak up because you never know. You would be surprised. My favorite quote is Albert Einstein, and I kind of modify it. She who attempts the absurd can achieve the impossible. So if you're not attempting the absurd, you are missing out because the impossible is pretty fantastic. Wow. I love that. And what percentage is it now? Has it changed a lot? So you said less than 10% of the military is women or army. I want to make sure I got that right. It was the army. And I think it was around 10%. I don't know exactly, but it was very low. And then when I went into the FBI in 1996, only 14% of the agents were women. And when I retired, only 20%. So we had only gone up 6% in 22 years. Wow. So not much of a change, really. Yeah, not a whole big change. Yeah, just that little bit of the story that you've told about your life shows why you wanted to start this podcast about showcasing women who have made it big in male-dominated fields because you've lived it, you're passionate about it, and you're passionate about how women can do that, I assume, right? Oh, absolutely. And when I started the podcast, I kind of had a concern that, okay, everyone's going to have the same story because I knew what my story was. And I just assumed that everyone had experienced the same thing that I did or similar. But in my first 15 guests, all 15 had a different message to tell, something that was unique to them about what they did to get to where they are. I have one woman who runs a $200 million a year oil company, and she talks about how she was hazed back in the 80s because she was the only woman in Oklahoma working in the oil industry for this particular company. It's really fascinating, and it's not male bashing at all. It's really helping the men and the women coming up behind us in a particular industry who may want to have a few tips on their way up. Could you tell us about a particular leadership challenge in your career that you faced that would be helpful for other people to hear about? I think the leadership challenge for me was just the amount of responsibility that I had to keep my agents as an executive for the FBI alive and going home to their families every night. So because we would go and do arrest warrants and search warrants and SWAT operations and all of these different things. So really just knowing when you could take a risk, when you shouldn't take a risk, and just balancing that out, the thought process when it comes to leadership and making critical decisions. I think you'd have to get to a point where you can have that split second balance of, okay, is this too much risk? Is this not enough risk? Just making a decision because so many times we get stuck when it comes to making critical decisions in fear that we're going to fail or it's going to be the wrong decision. Let me think about it some more. It's so important to get that muscle memory making decisions. You can make mistakes. That's okay. We all learn from our mistakes. But it was probably the biggest challenge that I had was working out that muscle memory of being able to make these super important decisions based on a small amount of time. So let's unpack this a little bit. First of all, this is heavy because one of the first things you said was my leadership challenge was to keep my team alive. 
Like literally, that just brings, I think, a lot of us to a really better perspective on the kinds of decisions or how we are wanting to take risks or be bold into perspective, because most of us are doing jobs day to day that don't require us to think about how can I make sure that I keep my team alive? Like you said, there's a mindset around constantly thinking about making decisions and what decisions do you make through the lens of how safe is it? but yet we have a mission and how do we get closer to achieving that mission without the risks being too great? Yes, absolutely. And really, when I was developing leaders that were coming up behind me, I had at any given time anywhere between seven and 10 squad supervisors that reported to me. And for the new supervisors, that was always something when they brought me an operations plan to do an arrest or do a search warrant or do an operation of any kind, I would talk them through it because they needed to learn how to make those decisions too. Because the last thing that I wanted is for them to come to me to make me the bad guy to say, oh no, we need 10 more people and we can't do it this way. We have to do it this way. Just putting that weight on them so they could start making the big decisions because it all ended with me. (laughs) I was the one who was putting my name on the signature line to send these people out into dangerous situations. Is there a particular story that comes to mind when you think about an example of this and when you were faced with making this kind of decision and maybe there's one that didn't go as well as you wanted to and maybe there's another one that went better? Probably the times where we would be on the fence as to whether or not we are going to use a SWAT team to go in or whether or not we are going to use a squad to go in. And there were often things that you had to have in order for it to be a SWAT operation because those are the guys and the gals who are trained to go in and handle these heavy situations if there's weapons in the house or if there's things like that. Really, it's just a fine line to make sure that we're prepared. On my podcast, I interview a woman by the name of Brenda Robinson who was was the first African-American female Navy pilot in the history of the United States Navy. I asked her if she was scared whenever she would go in the first time that she landed on an aircraft carrier, because that would scare the heck out of me. No kidding. A lot of things don't scare me, but I'll tell you, if I had to land a you know multi-million dollar piece of government property onto a postage stamp in the middle of the ocean, that would be something that would get my attention. <laughs> but what she said is that when you're prepared, you don't have time to be scared. So you're working on paying attention to, I guess they have a ball in the cockpit that they watch to make sure that everything's going okay and all the instruments are in the right place and everything's going the right way. If you expand that out, whenever you're scared or whenever you're nervous about something, when you're prepared, like when you're prepared for a speech or when you're prepared for an interview or a conversation that you're having with one of your employees, that takes all the fear out of it. So the more you prepare, the more you are prepared, the less fear that you'll have in your life. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because I do a workshop on stress and resiliency. And some of the neuroscience behind that is there's good stress and there's bad stress. And the only difference between good stress and bad stress is your perception of the resources that you have to overcome the obstacle or the challenge in front of you. If it's good stress, you're prepared, right? You know what you have. You have what it takes to do the thing that you have to do. Bad stress is basically you're not prepared and you feel anxious because you don't have what you need in order to take on that challenge. So I think that's a really great point. And when you're not prepared, 
there's always collaboration. There is always somebody out there who can do what it is that you're trying to do or knows how to do something. Just being collaborative and not being afraid to ask for advice or counsel or, hey, I know how to do this and you know how to do that. Why don't we take on this task together? You can always get past an obstacle if you have the right team around you. I'm kind of curious, given your career and given the situations that you've been in is different than a lot of other people's career. Is there a situation that you think of that was the most frightening as a leader in your career? When I was an agent, I was the only FBI agent on a task force in Little Saigon. It's a district in Orange County, California, that is home to the largest population of Vietnamese people outside of Vietnam. I was going after a big gangster, and we had probably been working on this case for six months, and there was a drive-by shooting in a cafe that shot one of his gang members. And so he was looking to retaliate. And so he got somebody to bring a gun down from San Jose, and they were on their way up to do a drive-by shooting to kill this individual. And so just trying to stop that (laughs) was a lot of stress. So how did you do that? Yeah, it wasn't danger to me, but it was just the heavy burden of, okay, if we mess this one up, that's not going to be a good thing. But We were able to stop him on the 22 freeway on his way up to a card club up in L.A. to do the shooting. And heaven only knows what could have happened in a crowded casino when this went down. We were able to stop it before it happened. And based on great collaboration and coordination with our local counterparts and just making good decisions all day because we had been listening to his phone and we had been on surveillance all day long for probably 15 hours. So by the time that went down, we were prepared. We were prepared to take him out of the equation and he was arrested on the freeway. Wow, that's amazing. One word that you keep bringing up is collaboration. And it sounds like the way you think about leadership and the way you have led your teams and led situations that you've been in really have been successful because of collaboration. Is that true? And can you say more about that? Throughout my entire career, that was true because I, in my very first case, when I I was a probationary agent, just coming into this Santa Ana resident agency, I got a case where Thai girls were being brought in the United States and they were being forced into prostitution. And I had no idea. I was a counterintelligence agent. I didn't know anything about organized crime or prostitution or involuntary servitude or any of those things. And so I looked in the case file and I saw an article in the newspaper where a detective from the Westminster Police Department by the name of Tommy Ratcliffe, he just rescued two Thai girls not too long ago. So I got in my car and I drove over and I had no idea that their chief hated the FBI. And when I showed up, I'm asking for Tommy Ratcliffe, and they're looking at me like I'm crazy when I have my FBI badge and credentials up there. And that turned into me sitting on a task force in the basement of the Westminster Police Department with Tommy Ratcliffe and several other detectives working on a task force. So you just never know when you don't know something. It is so important to find somebody who does. And just like our relationship, Winnie, you and I were chatting and there were things that you can help me with and there were things that I could help you with. So yes, collaboration is so important. So you're in the FBI, you were aware of this happening, Thai girls being pulled into prostitution, and you read something about this other person in the local police, and then you went over to talk to them. And normally, from what I understand, the FBI and the local police force in that area either didn't work 
that often together or when they had to, they had to, but it's not like it was maybe an easy relationship. But because it sounds to me like you were genuinely interested in what they were doing and felt like, hey, we can help. I want to step in and help this person figure this out. This is something I'm passionate about. You went in there, you did it. You were disregarding maybe history of, oh, you're FBI, I'm police. Put that aside. Let's work together. And that's how it happened. Did I get that right? Yes, you got it absolutely right. And I'll fill in some of the details. I didn't know that the chief of police hated the FBI. Apparently, there was some operation that happened in his city, and he was the last to know about it. So he didn't even want FBI agents in his department. He didn't want FBI agents in his entire city. And I didn't know that. I think it was like two months into my tenure as an FBI agent on the street. And I didn't even call Tommy before I went over there. I just got in my 1980 powder blue Ford Taurus, and I just drove over to the Westminster Police Department. And that's why there was all of these people looking at me when I held up my badge and credentials as if I was somebody because I'd been an FBI agent for a whole two months. <laughs> so I see in the background all of these people congregating. And then I see an old guy coming up and I'm like, hey, there must be something going on over there. And uh, it was me. They were talking about me. What are we supposed to do with her? She's sitting out there in the lobby. So Tommy brought me back to this tiny little itty bitty closet that he had as an office. And I think he must have felt sorry for me. So he gives me some information about my case and then he shoes me out the back door. When I went back the next day, cause I'm like, Hey, this guy's giving me information. The chief intercepted me and I had to get his permission in order to work one case. And that turned into us working together for five years. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So it's almost like in that case, ignorance was bliss a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I love it when people tell me that, Oh, you can't do this for this reason, or you can't do this for this reason. When I was in the army in Belgium, we didn't have a relationship with the local gendarmerie office where we were supposed to do our records checks. So my captain said, I need you to get these checks done, but they won't take our phone calls. And I'm like, okay, I'll just get in the car and go over. So they didn't have any time of day for all of the men in the office, but my friend Andre Jorquin over at the gendarmerie in Belgium, he certainly had time for a California blonde former cocktail waitress. And so we just chit-chatted and built a relationship. And every time I ever needed any sort of checks, we built a genuine friendship. So it's all about trying and not letting obstacles stand in your way. If it's never been done before, then you can be the first one to do it. It's almost like ignoring those obstacles and not assuming that those are going to be the same obstacles for you. Exactly. Did being a woman in these situations where many of your colleagues were men. And it sounds like, honestly, probably a lot of the people you were working with to apprehend or something, many of them were men too. What advantage did it give you, if any, do you think you had an advantage being a woman and being very different and standing out? Did that give you an advantage both internally as well as in the actual work that you did? I think it gave me an advantage when I went over and spoke with Monsieur Jorquin. <laughs> I was unusual, and I think that opened the door, but I had to keep it going with poignant conversation. Sometimes it worked. I had a subject who confessed to being a leg breaker for a loan shark. Wow. And he just sat there and he told me that he worked for this loan shark. It was 10% interest per week. And when people didn't pay, he'd break their legs. So he didn't think there was anything wrong with it. And he told me the entire story. And then he wound up going to jail and he couldn't believe that I had betrayed him like that. So those type of things have happened. But then there were other times where 
Some men felt uncomfortable to have me around as the only woman because they couldn't talk the way they wanted to talk or act the way they wanted to act. So those type of things, like you said, if you just ignore it and then press on and do your job, uh, a lot of times we automatically suspect when we are different or we're the only women in the room that, oh, they're treating me this way because of this. Maybe you remind them of their mother who they have a bad relationship, or maybe (laughs) they're having a bad day and it has absolutely nothing to do with you. So there are a lot of reasons why people can treat you in a particular way. But if you think every time, oh, it's because of me, I'm bad, I'm not good enough, I'm a woman, then you're never going to be successful because you're always going to have a reason not to be. So what gives you the fortitude, the mindset, the way of thinking that gets you through those situations when you're getting that kind of feeling or you're like, yep, they don't like me because I'm a woman, but maybe it's those other things that you mentioned, right? But there's a weird dynamic going on right now and I have to deal with it. What gives you the ability to deal with it? I'm motivated by getting the ball down the field, getting the job done. And one of my pet peeves is people standing in my way when I'm on a mission and I want to get the job done. I'm not a patient person. I love that about myself. I embrace my imperfections, but that's how I'm wired. I really don't have time for that type of drama. And when it does happen, it's like, okay, I don't need to be involved in this. I ignore a lot of it. Say my boss wants to go out and have lunch with the boys every day, and he'll invite me because he feels he has to invite me. But I don't want to go and sit and do boy talk for two hours. If it's going to slow me down, then I don't want to participate in it. Now, would it give me an advantage to hang out with the boss? Or would I have more of an advantage getting my work done and doing that? You just have to balance that. But I don't suffer fools wisely. There were times where I would take it personally, but the amount of energy that goes into taking something personally can be exhausting sometimes. And that in and of itself is an obstacle. So when you're focused on a priority and trying to get the ball down the field, you don't have time for all of the other nonsense that may or may not be significant. Right. From knowing you a little bit, there's something about you where you're wired to be able to successfully take some of this stuff on. So maybe there's a little bit of that. But also, to be honest, you've been in situations like this for such a long time that you get thick-skinned, you figure out how to deal with it. You've had a lot of at-bats, right? Yeah. But do you have any advice for women, maybe especially, who maybe aren't wired like that or don't have as many at-bats to take this stuff on? Do you have any advice for people who are trying to shift closer to your end of the continuum? Sure, sure. So let's talk about taking things personally. So something happens in the workplace where someone says something or does something that offends you in some way. And I'm not talking about the real life sexual harassment. I'm just talking everyday life that you're trotting down the highway and someone says something or does something that offends you. So you take it personally. So think about a time or when that happens and all of the energy that goes into number one, you're putting yourself into the spotlight, either as a victim or an unnecessary hero. Okay. Right. Okay. <laughs> and it takes a lot of energy to do that. And then you're going to call all your friends and your family and your significant others. And you're going to talk about the injustice that just happened to you. And then you're going to be up all night long thinking about how you're going to plot that person's demise. And then all of these things, all this energy goes into that. 
as opposed to just nipping it in the bud when it happened. I used to give people the finger, and it's not that finger. I would give them the come here finger if they were going to call my baby ugly or if they were going to say something that offended me. I would ask them, what did you mean by that? And it's as simple as that. And what do you mean by that is like you're either checking the person because you know what they meant by that and you want them to explain it to you and now they're on the spot. Or maybe, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it that way. This is what I meant. Oh, okay, that's fine. And then just think you have the entire day to go about your business and get the ball down the field instead of all of the other energy and all the other activities that go with taking things personally. So when I first got on the task force at the Westminster Police Department, I'm sitting in the basement with all of these men and detectives, they really didn't talk to me all that much. So automatically I think, okay, they don't like me. This is what I'm thinking. So this goes on for like a week or something. And so I went to my partner and I'm like, you know what? I don't think these guys like me, Tommy Ratcliffe. And he goes, no, 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 no. They like you. They just hate the FBI. And I'm like, oh, I automatically took it to myself and made myself a victim instead of, oh, well, maybe they just don't trust FBI agents. Okay, that's fine. And so now I know how to resolve the issue. I know that the issue is not me, so I don't have to feel bad about myself. But just by having that conversation, the rest of the four years and 11 months that I was there, I didn't have that issue, even though some were standoffish just because I was with a federal agency and I wasn't with a local agency. I really like that a lot because two things you mentioned. So one is the whole energy. Where are you choosing to put your energy? It sounds like you think a lot about that. But then also what you're saying is let's, instead of wasting your energy, let's engage and have a conversation right now, (laughs) you know, and let's just talk about what just happened or what you just said and what you meant. And even the way that you asked it, what did you mean by that? Now you could say that in one way. So tone really matters in that question, but it sounds like your tone was genuine. Like I really do want to understand where you're coming from and let's actually engage and talk. Absolutely. And also just remember that everybody doesn't have to like you. You don't like everybody. It's okay if they don't like you. Like I said, maybe you remind them of somebody that they had issues with when they were a child. You don't know. It's called self-preservation. If you want to spend all of your time being mired and just being stuck in quicksand all day long, you can do that. Or you can just ask a question or engage someone. Like you said, it doesn't have to be nasty. It's just, hey, what did you mean by that? It'll get to the point where the more confidence you get when it happens in a room full of people and that person has done it before, I would have no problem if they stole my idea to call them out in front of the boss if they want to play that game. But that's advanced stuff. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Now we're talking about classes. (laughs) Exactly. We'll work on that at a later date. But again, having a voice having your voice and using your voice, because if you're going to sit there and not have a voice, then what contribution are you making? The other thing that you said is this whole thing of not everyone has to like you. I think women and girls are particularly trained around making sure that people like you. Not to say that you want everyone to hate you either, but I think girls and women are especially impressed to want to feel that way more than men and boys. So if that's true, and of course it's not true for every woman or for every man, if that's true for you, you have to really get over that and figure out how do I put that aside? Because that in itself could take a lot of energy, making sure that everyone's okay with you, everyone likes you, that can be exhausting. Yeah. And I would say just examine your life. What percentage of my day is getting the ball down the field and what percentage 
of my day is criticizing myself or wishing I had more confidence or tolerating things that I shouldn't be tolerating, the stuff that you don't need to spend time on. And really, when you look at it in that way, okay, well, I'm only spending 10% of the time getting the ball down the field. Well, what do I need to do to change that? And it doesn't have to be 100% of the time getting the ball down the field. But if you can get it up to a certain percentage, that success for you, that's what you need to be working on. If 25% of the day of getting the ball down the field is success to you, then work toward that. What can you eliminate during the other 75% of the day that you can convert to getting the ball down the field? And even if you just add it a couple of percentage points a week or something like that, you'll get to where you want to be. I think you hit it on the head. It goes back to what do you really want and what does success look like to you? Overcoming some of these tendencies of wanting people to like you or the energy going in places that are unproductive. What do I really want to achieve? And if we're talking about leadership, just know that people are watching you. If you're a leader, people are watching you. They're watching how you handle things, how you address people, how you nip things in the bud, how much effort and time that you're putting into this, that, or the other. So when you know your kids are watching, how differently do you act? Well, as leaders, we need to think, okay, so if my team were watching me right now dealing with this person who just insulted me in front of this group of people, how would they expect me to respond to this? And like I said, advanced, talk it out in front of everybody. You brought it up. Let's talk about it. You want to be a little bit more subtle about it? Just take the person aside and have a one-on-one conversation because you'd be surprised once you get to know someone. And that's where tolerance comes from is just knowing where someone's coming from. You just don't know. So that's why you ask, what do you mean by that? I think that's great life (laughs) advice. Having those conversations with people is what I think is so important and I really value. Are there one or two important learning moments or lessons that continue to provide you guidance during times of difficulty and challenge? We talked about not taking things personally, eliminating any tolerations in your life. And again, my mom used to tell me when I was a kid, it's none of your business what other people think about you. And I think that takes a lot of pressure off is when we're, as women, as we're dressing to go to work, trying to impress other people or trying to be something that we may or may not be, all of these things, again, they're just taking away from us getting the ball down the field. One thing that I try to do, especially back when I was with the FBI, I worked terrorist attacks, I worked major catastrophic cyber attacks. So when a major, major crisis hit and I would pick a good team, So that was always something that I was very, very skilled at. And I will brag about that all day long, because if you have a good team (laughs) surrounding you, you are going to be successful no matter what. It's very important to pick your team. But if you are trying to deal with a crisis and there's somebody who is taking something personally or slowing you down and trying to deal with this crisis or even a conflict. Get those people out of the way. Those are the people that you don't want on your team when you are trying to deal with something where you have to get the ball down the field. So I would say what's always helped me, I've always had when I was in the army, when I was at probationary agent with the Westminster police detectives. And Tommy Ratcliffe is still my friend. We just did a New England trip with his family and my family not too long ago. I love it. After 30 years, right? But yeah, always have a great 
team around you and develop the leaders that come behind you. I think that's just so important because when you're giving and you're serving your people in a bigger way, they're going to serve you in a bigger way. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's so true. And of course, if you have a good team, they're potentially better at you in areas that you're not, or if they're really good, they're going to call you out (laughs) on the places that you need to be called out on. Nevertheless, just being really great at what they do and being able to execute and you have the ability to then focus on other things, right? Yeah. And a lot of people, they are intimidated by having people who are smarter around them or people who know something more about something. When I took over the cyber program in Los Angeles in 2007, I had no technical skills whatsoever. So I was surrounded by a bunch of geniuses and you don't have to be smarter than your team when you're the leader. You just have to contribute. My job was to keep their horses on the reservation, make sure that everybody was on the right seat in the right bus, and that we were all going down the road in the right direction. So never be intimidated and don't choose because you have to be the smartest person in the room. I used to tell my guys, and I had gals at the end, but they were mostly men that I led. I would say, look, if the empress is walking around town with no clothes on, I am going to lop off all of your heads. <laughs> so we had that trust relationship where if I had to say something tech related and I was saying something stupid, right? And they knew that I wasn't a tech person. They had my trust and I had their trust that they were going to step in and we were going to smooth things over. But really that's a relationship that, again, it's all about collaboration. When you're the leader, you still have to collaborate with your team. I have a client struggling with being an individual contributor and an expert in what I I did and I did it really well, which is why I got promoted. And now I'm in this new role. But by the way, this new role involves something that maybe I don't have expertise in and the people on my team have greater expertise than I do, technical competency, right, around it. And I feel inadequate because I used to feel adequate because I knew it all. And now I'm in a position as a leader where I don't know it all and yet I have to lead. And I think that that's such a great point that you brought up. And it sounds like you were comfortable even though you didn't know because you had that team and you had clarity around what your role was on that team. I also was contributing. What I contributed, maybe it wasn't tech related, but I had just come from headquarters, so I knew where all the money trees were. I knew people back at headquarters that could buy my team equipment, so that made me super popular. I learned enough to be able to translate what they were saying to my boss and get approvals for operations. I used my skills, the communication, relationship building, my experience back at headquarters, because the higher we get in our organization, the more of a jack of all trades we're going to be. We're not going to be an expert in everything the higher that we get. So that's why you surround yourself with people who know and then you contribute as a leader. That's your opportunity to be a leader. And all the things that you mentioned, those are leadership skills, right? (laughs) Communication, you know, how to get resources, how to manage senior stakeholders, translation. You said earlier, the right talent, the right butts in the seats on the right bus. Those are the leadership skills that you were contributing to the team and helping them connect the dots to how their technical skills were actually going to be useful in the work in front of you. When you're a leader and you're trying to say, okay, now I know everything, I'm this, I'm that, and you're trying to be something that you're not 
people are going to pick up on that. All, your entire team is going to know. You're not going to fool anybody. You can't fake it till you make it because people can see it coming a mile away. So it's just being authentic. What are the things that I'm good at that I can contribute? That's where you become an authentic leader is when you take your skills. And, and if you're a woman and you have all soft skills, those are the things that you're really good at because that was what I was good at, the communication and the relationship building and the networking and all of those things. Those are the things that I embraced. And that's when I really started to shine as a leader was when instead of me trying to be all manly and do it this way or do it that way, I'm going to do it how I think it's going to be done. And I wore high heeled shoes and I wore a pencil skirt and I look good doing it. <laughs> I love it. But it must have taken you some time to get there, right? You maybe tried, I don't know if the right word is fitting in, but then you were able to evolve to, hey, I'm embracing what I'm really good at and also just who I am. And I'm going to show up that way. How did you get there? It was just a lot of learning all of the things that we talked about, not taking things personally. It used to take me, when I was a probationary agent, it would take me two hours to get ready for a search warrant because I'm like, okay, I can't wear this because it makes me look too manly. I can't wear this because it makes me look too feminine. That was in my head in the beginning because I was so interested in trying to fit in. And you know what it really took? I think the turning point is when I became a leader of something that I didn't know. Because I had become confident in my personal skill set that I have been good at ever since I was a little girl, right? Those natural skill sets. And they're important. And we think just because we have them that they're not important. But my communication, gosh, I use that every day, whether it's personnel issues, whether it's talking to victims or witnesses, talking to my troops, talking to police chiefs when I'm the only woman in the room, all of those things. And it's all about the skill set that we're good at. And that's when you shine as a leader is when you start really honing into your talent and you lead authentically. I love that you just made that connection between leading in a position where you didn't maybe know as much taking on that new group and you were almost forced to rely on what your skill sets were that might have been different than other people's. Yes. And the first day I called all of my supervisors to see how things were going because it was a new job for me. I didn't know how to be an assistant special agent in charge. Day two, call them all again. By the third day, the senior supervisor said, hey, you don't need to call us every day. <laughs> it's like, if we ever need you, we will reach out to you. And those are cyber people, very independent, creative. We got it. You don't have anything to offer because we haven't seen what you can contribute. So we'll just let you know. That's what I was dealing with in the beginning, but it's really about self-assessing and soul searching on, okay, so I am a leader. No matter what, I am their leader. How do I contribute? You've done a lot of crisis and conflict management as a leader, but also just in the work that you do. So you've been really steeped in, in this experience. When you think about leaders, what should they be doing or thinking about as they take on increasingly complex challenges and areas of crisis and conflict, which in this last year, a lot of us have had to deal with? What advice do you have as leaders are doing some of that more and more? I think with this generation of workers and in, in this time, it's so important to make sure that your people have ownership and investment in the mission of your company. And you're probably thinking, of course, they all have ownership, but do they have ownership or is that what we think they have? Because when you give people ownership and you allow them to do things the way that they want to do them, 
not the way that we want them to do them. If we just give them that gift and trust goes with that gift and they have ownership and they can go out and you give them a project and you say, this is what we need to have done. And then they go out and do it. And then they come back and then they're proud of what they did because they're contributing as opposed to telling them, okay, I want you to do it this way. Well, if they did it their way and we did it our way, we're still going to get the same result. So why are we micromanaging or why are we taking away their ownership in our company by telling them how they need to do things and taking that creativity away. So you would be surprised that when everybody on your team feels ownership and it's our program or our business as opposed to my program or my business, that's when you're going to have people who want to come to work every day, your morale is going to get higher, and people are going to start sharing ideas because they believe that their voices are heard. And that's where you really get that synergy going to find success two things that I heard. So like you said, the ownership and the investment in your company, but then it's if you understand the vision and you have that ownership, I'm going to let you get there. I'll help you and I'll support you where you need help. I'm there, but I'm not going to micromanage what and how it is that you get there. I think micromanaging comes from fear and that's fear of making mistakes or fear of failure. So that's an insecurity on the leader's part. That's not an issue with the workforce that they're not competent enough to do it in a way because my way, it's not necessarily the best way. There's a lot of smart people out there that can come up with really good ideas if we let them do it. But I remember as a young leader, I didn't want anybody making mistakes because I thought that any mistakes that any of my people made reflected on me. But the more I evolved into an authentic leader, I used to look for opportunities for my guys to make mistakes. I would give them projects that I knew were bigger than what they could handle. So they would have the opportunity to make mistakes. And I would give them guidance along the way. And if they went down a rabbit hole because they were stubborn and they were going to do it their way, and I knew... And I would give them some clues along the way, but if they wind up hitting bottom or hitting a wall, I'll be there and then we can start and work on things. But that's how you learn is by making mistakes. And as long as no taxpayers' dollars were spent, as long as no one got killed or injured, I would let my young up-and-coming leaders make mistakes because that's how they become better leaders. Yeah, absolutely. That's really important. So is there anything else I should ask you, Gina? that you would like to say to leaders, to people who are evolving to become better humans? Don't take it so seriously. The advice that I would give myself is just have more fun. You don't have to be perfect. Like I said, imperfections, that's what makes you extraordinary. Looking back on my career, I just wouldn't have taken things so seriously in the beginning. I would have had a lot more fun and I would have just been a bigger risk taker, not in a potentially negligent way, but in a way that I would grow from my mistakes versus being averse to making mistakes. Yeah. Well, Gina, this has been a lot of fun. I really enjoy your perspectives. It's a fresh perspective and yet it's really relevant. So thank you so much for being on my show and for sharing so much of yourself today. Thank you, Winnie. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winita Silva. Could you take a few minutes to provide a rating or write a comment on Apple Podcasts? Also, reach out to me at www.winnitasilva.com to learn more about my work in executive coaching, leadership development, and team effectiveness. If you have your own story of overcoming a leadership challenge you'd like to share, please email me at Winnie at Winifred.org. Maybe I'll even have you on my show. 
Thanks so much.